0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcast, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we're finishing up Matthew chapter 13. For the bulk of the chapter, Jesus has been uh, giving His third major discourse, which is the third of five, so it's kind of the central one in the middle of the gospel. And of course, it's been concerning the kingdom of heaven. And on the front end of that, as we ended chapter 12, we saw uh, very unexpected reactions to Jesus. Uh, from the scribes and the Pharisees, from the leaders of the people, really the leaders of the evangelical movement of that time. Uh, So that's very surprising that here the Messiah comes. We expect uh, God's people to rally around the Messiah, but that's not what we see. And that's a lot of what Jesus addresses when he gives the kingdom parables. He talks about the great success of the kingdom that's going to occur over time by the zeal of God. But he also talks about the fact that the kingdom is really like warfare as it goes forth. And so it's uh, very chaotic when you're in the foxholes. There's a lot of messiness, a lot of people coming into the kingdom, and then a lot of sorting out of uh, wheat from tares and and so forth. And now that he's finished this um, section, we're going to see more unusual reactions, more reactions that we would not expect. So with that in mind, let's read, starting at verse 53 of Matthew 13. Down through 58 the end of the chapter this is the Word of God now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there and when he had come to his own country he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works is this not the carpenter's son is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. O Lord our God, we pray you would open your word, your treasury to us by your Spirit that we would be strengthened, edified, built up, comforted, uh, made full of faith and full of love, that we might be your faithful people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus here uh, comes to his own country, and the Greek there basically means his hometown. So this is not just like he's from Idaho and he came back to Idaho. No, this means like if he's from Meridian, he came back to Meridian. He came back to where he grew up, to the people who saw him, knew his family, and saw him all the way as he uh, grew up. And again, up to this point, we've seen these different surprising responses to Jesus, what we wouldn't expect, and here we see another surprising response, even a shocking response. His hometown people also oppose him. In fact, the text tells us that they were offended at him in verse 57. And it also tells us that their taking of offense against him was the product of unbelief, verse 58. And by unbelief, we see that it doesn't mean that the people were skeptics. It doesn't mean that they failed to believe that he was working miracles or that they failed to believe that he was a great teacher, teaching with great wisdom. For the people acknowledged that he did those things. Verse 54, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So unbelief here means something else. It's not a function of mind. It's not a, a matter of a lack of evidence. It's a function of heart. It means a refusal to receive him, a refusal to acknowledge him as Messiah, or at least as a prophet. It means rejecting Him, being offended to Him due to hardness of heart. The problem was not lack of evidence concerning His miracles or teaching. They had plenty of evidence of both, and they acknowledged them. It was the very fact that the evidence was undeniable that offended them. Had Jesus not taught with such wisdom and not done such miracles, there would have been no offense. Think about it. Now, these are Israelites. They have received a heritage of God's people from the Old Testament. And for generations, they have been waiting for the Messiah to be delivered. Surely, they wanted the Messiah to come. Surely, they wanted the Messiah to teach with amazing wisdom and to do mighty works. So what then is the problem? Jesus is doing exactly what they would want a Messiah to do. Why are they offended? Well, the text tells us that the offense relates to the fact that Jesus had been one of them. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? We know his mother. She's right here. His brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. His sisters, are they not all with us? They're part of us. They're with us. Where then... Did this man get all these things? In other words, who does he think he is? We know where he came from. We know what his roots are. He's one of us. His family still is. But now he isn't. He's too good for us. He's above us now. He's all high and mighty. He's special. He thinks he's better than we are. They're basically accusing Jesus of doing what God commanded kings not to do, to lift up their heart above their countrymen. But we know that Jesus is not lifting up his heart above his countrymen. We know he is serving his countrymen and he's serving his hometown folk. We know he did not come, as he told us, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In fact, His service to His people will be shown by the fact that it will lead all the way to the cross. So Jesus is serving them by teaching them. He's not placing Himself above them. He's placing Himself beneath them. He's serving serving them by teaching them. He is serving them by working miracles in their midst. He is serving them by calling them to follow Him. But that's not the way they see it. They see it as He's lifting Himself up above, and they are offended at Him. Now, this attitude, Jesus tells us, is not unique. Verse 57, a prophet, He's speaking here now of a general phenomenon, not something unique to these people. A prophet, any prophet, is not without honor except in his own hometown, and in his own household. Luke records Jesus as saying this way, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. So this is not a one-off reaction. This is a general phenomenon of human behavior in a fallen world. But it still shocks us, doesn't it, when we read it? We, we get offended at these people for being offended at Jesus. We get offended at them. We read this, we go, can you believe those people? Because we think that of all, if all, of all people, his hometown folk would support him. But Jesus says the opposite. No prophet is honored in his hometown. We think familiarity should breed support. Jesus tells us it breeds contempt. So what are we missing? Well, there is a name for this reaction, just as there is a name for the reaction we saw earlier from the scribes and Pharisees, and the name for both is the same. But Matthew is not going to tell us this name until near the very end of the story. When these reactions and attitudes culminate in the crucifixion of Christ at that time Matthew would tell us that the reason the leaders and the people delivered Jesus up to be crucified was because of envy. Envy is what we saw working in the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 12. Envy is what we see working in the hometown people here and envy will end up putting Christ on the cross. Now. This is more than an interesting fact. It's more than, huh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that curious? Who would have thought it? Who would have thought that envy would play such a role? But that's not what we're supposed to see from this. What we're supposed to see is this. If envy played this kind of central role in the wickedest act of human history, what role do you think it plays in our everyday lives. We need to remember that in the crucifixion of Christ, God was drawing together all the wickedness of mankind, all the worst that fallen man could do so that he could heap it upon his Son and deal with it on the cross. So the human motivations and reactions through which Christ was placed on the cross give us deep and vivid insight into the nature of sin and how it manifests itself. God is showing us not only that envy played a central and destructive role in the crucifixion of Christ, but that it plays a central and destructive role in all of our lives, just as we see it playing such a role in the lives of his town folk. In other words, when we're shocked by the response of Jesus' hometown folk, God is saying to us, that's you. Look into the mirror. We say, can you believe those people? And God says, wants us to see that they are us. We are them. Now, the Bible tells us that Christ came to destroy the power of sin. And the power of sin is seen preeminently in the way that it motivated people who should have embraced Christ, these were God's own people, to instead frame him and to deliver him up to death. Thus, Christ came especially to destroy the power of the heart motivations that led to his crucifixion, for they represent preeminently the face and the power of sin. So while Christ came to destroy the power of all sin, He especially came to destroy the power of envy and the sin to which envy leads, which is murder. Because the two are connected. So let's think about this a little bit, this shocking phenomenon we see in Jesus' hometown folk. The word envy translates the Greek word zelos. It's the word we get zeal from. And it literally means to be heated or to boil. So to be heated of itself, think about it. Is that good or is it bad? Well, it's neither good nor bad. We don't know. It depends on what fuel you're burning for heat in your heart and why. Zelos is sometimes used in a good way. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, talks to the church of Laodicea, He tells them that their problem is they're lukewarm. They're neither cold nor hot. So he's going to spew them out of his mouth if they don't become zealous, if they don't become full of zeal and repent. So Jesus wants their hearts to be focused on him and to be heated up with love for him. But there are also a lot of bad things that can heat the heart as well. And in a fallen world, most of the fuels that we heat our hearts with are not good. So whenever in the Bible the Greek word zelos is used in an unspecific way, in other words, without a good purpose being specified, it is almost always a bad thing. Just like heat for no good reason will probably produce no good. Right? In life, it's the same thing with what heats our heart. So zeal in the Bible, zealos takes on the meaning of fixing the heart on another person, fixing the heart on someone else, and then being heated up. Jesus says, fix your hearts on me and let your hearts be heated up with love for me. Envy is what happens when our heart gets fixed on somebody other than Christ, somebody other person, and it's being heated up for evil purposes. So envy is one of the most prevalent and universal sins. It's, uh, it's one of the seven deadly sins that for a thousand years have been uh, listed. Uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4.4 4 says, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. In other words, Solomon is saying, I looked out and I saw that what motivates the human race is envy neighbor to neighbor. We call it keeping up with the Joneses, uh, you know, feel like they got this, we got to get that, you know, comparison, evaluating ourselves, evaluating our lives uh, based on what's going on around us, what's happening to the other people who are similarly situated to us, and then focusing on other people and then getting heated up in our hearts on that way. So that's what makes the fallen world go around. And that's why two of the Gospels tell us that it was because of envy that Jesus was delivered up to be crucified. Two of the Gospels tell us that. It's a very significant thing. God wants to see the role that it plays. Now, it comes from an interesting source, that observation. It comes from Pilate. It says in the Gospels, Matthew and Mark, that Pilate knew it was because of envy that they were delivering Jesus up to be crucified. Now, we may think, well, who's Pilate? That's the guy who says what is truth. But you see, God knows an expert when he sees one. Pilate is an expert at relativistic political thinking. Pilate knows what makes the political world go round. He knows its envy, and he knows it when he sees it. And God knows an expert when he sees one. And that's why we have that. James wrote in chapter 4 of his epistle to the, um, out to the synagogues of the Jewish believers. Uh, the synagogues at that time really were the churches in the Jewish communities. Because you had a lot of people uh, coming to Christ. And he writes out to all these different ones. He's not writing to a particular synagogue or church. He's writing to all the ones that are scattered out there. In, in the Roman Empire. And he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, we might stop James right there and say, you know, here we are in Meridian. He's writing from Washington, D.C. He's writing out all over the United States. And so he writes to us here in Meridian. He says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And say, whoa, 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 James. I mean, you don't know us. You've never been to Meridian.'" you don't even know us. Those you think you're painting with a little bit of a broad brush, it's like, well, God doesn't think so. He doesn't need to know us in particular. He knows us. He knows all of us. He says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Now, he's not meaning that they're shooting one another. He's not complaining about a problem of dead homicide victims every Lord's Day when they get together. He's talking about other forms of murder the way God speaks of it in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 16 the famous passage where Jesus gives us the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He's talking about murder in that context. That's what he's talking about. He's basically saying love your neighbor as yourself and so don't murder your neighbor. Well murder, homicide is the most extreme form but he talks about lesser forms of murder. He talks about holding grudges. He talks about uh, slandering. He talks about talking people down, stealing somebody's, killing somebody's good name, that kind of stuff. That's all forms of murder in the Bible. And so that's what James is talking about. He says, you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. And then notice what he says next. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Notice the connection between envy and murder in all of its forms. It has been said that envy is the vice which brings the least pleasure when pursued and the most shame when admitted. Other vices bring at least some temporary pleasure. Envy brings only misery. Other vices might be admitted without necessarily bringing disgrace. But envy cannot be admitted without admitting that one is small-souled, which is the very essence of disgraceful. And yet we all do it. It's important we understand envy's aim. We've said that it leads to murder, and that's what James says, and that's what we see in the Bible. It's what we see with Jesus. We need to understand what its aim is because in English we occasionally use the word envy to mean a form of admiration in which we wish we could emulate the one admired. We hear uh, some a great musician or somebody like that and we say, I, I envy you, uh, in which we say, well, I, w- I wish I could play the violin the way you, c- you can. But that's not what envy is in the Bible. In the Bible, envy does not want to become like its object it wants to destroy the difference. It does not want to become like its object. It wants to destroy the difference. And often the most effective way and sometimes the only way to destroy the difference is to destroy the person. Either literally, like we see with the Lord Jesus where they put Him on a cross, or virtually destroy their good name, you know, destroy their life, make them miserable, turn other people against them take away their friends, take away their fellowship. In that regard, C.S. Lewis said, Envy always brings the truest charge. Now notice, first of all, envy brings a charge. That's how envy murdered the Lord Jesus Christ. It brings a charge, a false charge against Him. We see His people here bringing a false charge against Him. They've got talk now all going around the town about Jesus. And it's all false talk. And they're stealing, they're killing his good name. They're killing his reputation. They're taking a piece of him. It's a form of murder. So C.S. Lewis says, so when envy makes a charge, what charge is it going to bring? It says, envy always brings the truest charge, or else the charge nearest to the truth that envy can think up. Why? Because it It hurts more. It hurts more. And the thing is, in a fallen world, um, when we're all dealing with other sinners, you don't have to look that far to find something that's mostly true. Or at least plausible about somebody. But here, I mean, Jesus doesn't have any faults. But they're able to find something that's plausible. Doesn't he grow up here? And we know his, his wife, his, his mother, his sisters, his brothers, they're all here still among us. And where has he gotten all this great wisdom and these mighty deeds? So somebody hears that kind of talk. And you hear that kind of talk, it sets in confirmation bias. And then they go. And they find Jesus. And what's he doing? He's talking in front of a whole bunch of people. He's opening up the scriptures like he understands them. He's speaking with authority, not with humility like the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, sure enough, yeah. Where did he get this great wisdom and these mighty deeds? And now he's not with the townsfolk anymore. He's off. He's a big shot now. And so with confirmation bias set in by the talk... You go and you go, oh, sure looks plausible, sure looks plausible to me. You believe it. We see the face of envy in the most famous court case of the Old Testament, the case of the two harlots who both claimed the same baby, who appeared before King Solomon. The false mother, the lying mother, didn't want the baby as much as she wanted the real real mother not to have the baby to which end she was willing to have the baby cut in half right what does the real mother say don't harm the baby give her the baby okay that's love that's not envy what does envy say no cut the baby in half what does cutting the baby in half do with for the false mother nothing But you've got to understand, envy doesn't want to become like its object. Envy wants to destroy the difference. What's the difference between these two best friends, formerly? A baby. Kill it. Destroy it. That's what envy wants to do. And once you know the face of envy, once you see it in the crucifixion of Christ, and you see it in other places, you start realizing it pops up all over the place in the Bible. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, tells us, that it was because of envy that Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him and then satisfied themselves by selling him as a slave into Egypt. So that's another form of virtual murder. It was envy that motivated them. Again, they don't want to be like their brother. They want to destroy the difference. And you start seeing that Cain and Abel, this is the story there. It is envy that leads Abel I mean, Cain, to kill Abel. And you think about this. You think about how it shows unbelief. Because who is speaking the truth to Cain and trying to minister truth to him to get him to turn out of, of the way he's headed? It's God himself. God himself says to Cain, Cain, if you do well, will you not be approved? Everything will be fine if you turn. But if you don't turn, Cain, if you don't turn in your heart, you know, sin's crouching at the door. And it's going to master you. And what's going to happen when it masters you? God knows it's going to end up in murder. And so Cain has the opportunity to be just like Abel. What's the difference? Two similarly situated brothers. What's the difference between them? One is enjoying good fellowship with God, proper fellowship with God, a right relationship with God, and the other one is not. That's the difference. Does Cain have the opportunity to be just like Abel? Yes, he does. Who does he get this opportunity from? From God himself. All he needs is a change of heart toward God himself, the one speaking to him, and he will be just like Abel. That's not what envy wants. Envy wants to destroy the difference. And how did he do it? The only way he could. He destroyed Abel. So envy in the Bible is always a bad thing. It's always destructive. It's quite the opposite of love. Love, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, builds up. It makes other people strong. It makes them strong. It builds them up. Envy tears down. It's one of the most destructive forces in the world. So James says in chapter 3 of his epistle, Where there are envy and self-seeking, there is confusion and every evil thing. Where there is envy and self-seeking, there is confusion and every evil thing. Now part of what makes envy so insidious, so pernicious, and so destructive, is that it thrives in the very same environment love does. Okay? It's kind of like a staph infection. It grows in a sterile, it grows in a uh, uh, you know, a clean environment. Staph infection grows at the hospital. That's the way envy is. It grows in the same environment that love does. And that is the environment of relationships and commonality. Sharing things in common with other people. We may despise a distant person, but we will never envy them. We may despise the politician on TV who perpetrates wickedness in high places, but we don't envy them. We envy the one we're in close quarters with in some way, some way that we're similarly situated, somewhere we, somebody we share something in common with, the one we consider ourselves comparable to, The one who may have started out is our close friend. So if there is a common bond and often a close friendship like you have with the two harlots, they were best friends. Best friends. What happens then to arouse envy? A difference, a difference real or perceived, arises among those who share in common, often known as friends some difference arises. It can be real. It can be perceived. So you have difference interjected into commonality. Envy is that feeling deep within you that keeps you from being altogether happy for a friend who experiences some good, fo- good fortune that you don't share. It's that little feeling deep within you that keeps you from being totally happy for them. It's that feeling deep within you that keeps you from being altogether sad for a friend who experiences something negative that you don't share. There's a quote from a gentleman whose name I can't really pronounce. It's French. But he says that um, there is always something in our closest friends' misfortunes that make us happy. I don't even know if he's a Christian, but he's very insightful. Envy is that small voice that deep within, it keeps us from wholeheartedly rejoicing with those who rejoice And weeping with those who weep. It is that small voice deep down within us that asks one constant question. What about me? Envy, as we've seen, is a function of unbelief. It's a function of unbelief. And envy's antidote, therefore, is faith. The answer to envy is faith. God wants the church to be a people who are full of faith and devoid of envy. This means we have to to know our hearts and we have to be vigilant. Because like we said before, when we see these townspeople, they are us, we are them. We have to understand that envy and everything that we do, whatever is warming our hearts, whatever is heating our hearts up, is a commentary on God. It is a commentary on God. If we have faith and our focus is on God, that's what's warming our hearts up. We understand that life is not a zero-sum game. There's not a limited amount of blessing with God. There's not a limited amount of love with God. There's not a limited amount of faithfulness and goodness with God. And the fact that He gives some special favor or gifts to one of our friends that he doesn't give to us. It doesn't diminish us in any way. It doesn't diminish us in any way. And so we are free and strengthened to fully rejoice with them and not say what about me? What about me? When we envy, it is a commentary on God. It is our confession of his lack of love, his lack of wisdom, and his lack of power. That's what we're confessing when we envy. Remember, it was Joseph's faith. It was his focus on God. It was his understanding and faith in God's love, God's wisdom, and his sovereign power that kept Joseph from being embittered against his brothers. It is faith that is the opposite of envy that enabled him to say to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. So remember, the envy at base is not a statement about the other person that you may feel envy toward. And remember, don't think envy wanting to emulate. It's more a feeling of resentment. That's the envy. It's a feeling of resentment towards somebody else. It's a feeling of hostility and animosity, uh, of malice toward them. So envy is not at base a statement about the other person. It is a statement about God. Our envy is not a reflection of what is true about the other person. It is our statement of what is true about God. And this is part of the truth that we must tell ourselves. And we must not let ourselves off the hook. We must not change the real issue. Life is a confession. Life is a confession. That's a fact. It's like saying the sun rises in the east. The only thing we control is what we confess. And God wants us to confess Him. His love, His wisdom, His power. You know, when you think about it, we talk about how envy has the one constant question, what about me? The only person in history who could truly say, what about me, was Jesus. He is the only one who got absolutely a raw deal. He's the only one who could say, what about me? They deserve to suffer. I deserve to be blessed and not to suffer. He is the only one in human history who could say that absolutely. But that's not what he said. That's not what he said. He said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was free of envy. He was full of love. He showed himself, therefore, to be grand of soul, a truly great man and a truly free man. He is our Savior, yes, but he's also our example. And he is the measure of humanity and of every person. Jesus shows us the path to true nobility and freedom and greatness. Love expands a soul. Envy shrinks it and shrivels it. Nothing expands a soul like love. Nothing shrinks it like envy. Envy enslaves. You know, normal slavery is a two-party affair. But the slavery of envy is a single-party slavery which is the worst slavery of all. You're in bondage to another person in a way, but they're completely uninvolved. Envy destroys. It destroys its target because it'll motivate you to do things to bring harm to them in some way or another or to withhold love from them. It destroys both its target and its keeper. Envy is boiling acid If it scars and burns the one it splashes on, what does it do to the one it's boiling in? Destroys. And so we want to be a people who are full of faith and devoid of envy. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. How much more then should we love our friends? But a lot of times that is the hardest task in a fallen world is to love those who we are close to, who we actually see. Jesus says, a prophet will receive honor except in his own hometown from his own people. And again, that is a perverse thing. You know, we think we love the most the people that we are closest to. And yet, when we're honest, we will also confess that we treat the worst, the ones that we love the most and the ones that we are closest to. And so it's easy to what, in whatever area and whatever field to build up uh, objects of our uh, approval and of our praise, uh, objects uh, put on pedestal, people who are distant in whatever area, to put them up on a pedestal. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing to the prophets. Jesus points that out. He says, you build them up, you adorn their tombs because they're no longer close They're distant because of time. They're distant. He said, but your prophets hated them. They killed them. And so the prophets that are actually close to these people, John the Baptist, Jesus, the greatest prophet of all, they don't honor. Now, it's easy for us, you know, we can say, well, you know, the thing is, the people that were actually around, the people in our local body, um, we see all their flaws. We see their clay feet. And that's true. I mean, we do. When you're around one another all the time, you see one another's flaws. Somebody else who's in a distant, you don't see their flaws. But we need to, that's that's true, that's true. But we need to realize this. Jesus didn't have any flaws. But that didn't prevent envy from doing its work. There were no flaws to be seen. And envy still proceeded apace to do its work with the only perfect man who has ever lived. And so we want to be vigilant of our hearts. We want to understand that what God is calling us to as a people, not just generally as the church with a capital C, but this church, our local body, the people we see. God wants us to make sure we're devoid of envy, that we're full of faith, we rejoice with one another we weep when another weeps we don't have to you don't have to protect yourself you don't have to have that voice saying what about me I got left out look what happened to them he got a raise this happened to them that didn't happen to us you don't have to worry about that God's in control of all those things and there's an infinite amount of his blessing and an infinite amount of his love and he doesn't make mistakes he has all wisdom and nothing is out of his control. He's completely sovereign over everything. And so we're free to be free of this bondage and this destructive passion called envy. And we want to have that. We want to love the most those that we see on a regular basis. We do not want to be, we want to be transformed from being like Jesus' town folk to being a person like Joseph to being a person like Jonathan, Saul's son, who was in the perfect place to be envious of David because he was in line to inherit the kingdom, right? To inherit the throne. Saul is his father. Saul even says that to Jonathan at one point. You're an idiot. You're a fool. Don't you understand? You're helping out David. You're the one who's going to inherit the throne. You help him out. You're not going to inherit the throne. Perfect setup for envy and murder. That's not what we see in Jonathan. It's like God chooses David to be the king. And Jonathan is his... It, it, it says that he, he, he loved him with a love that was unlike any other love. You know, That's the love that Jonathan has toward David, the one whom God has chosen. He gets it. He is not losing anything. He's gaining. He's gaining. And so I commend these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.